This is Gerald Salenti of the Trends Research Institute. You're listening to the Corbett Report. August the 8th, 1985. He approved the shipment. He approved the shipment. Reagan said it's possible to forget. I hope he's going to get it. There's criminality, there have to be prosecutions. All the facts have to be out in the open. They can't be until North and Point Extra testify. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 11th day of October, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners to The Corbett Report and invite them, as always, to check out the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com And, of course, reminding you about our affiliates and other ways that you can get this podcast, including KROXRadio1 at ZeroPointRadio.com, Berkeley Liberation Radio at BerkeleyLiberationRadio.org, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, RadioForAll.net. And, of course, if you ever have trouble downloading an episode of the podcast, please go to our independently hosted archives at Archive.org and search for Corbett Report. First and foremost this week, I would like all of my listeners to take special note that the Corbett Report has launched a new website. Now, in addition to CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, I would like to direct my listeners to ReportageBook.com, R-E-P-O-R-T-A-G-E Book.com, where you can now find the trailer for the forthcoming book from myself, James Corbett, Reportage. Essays on the New World Order. The book is almost ready to be shipped to the printers and will be available for purchase in December of this year. And of course, all of the information that you will need concerning this book, and in fact, what many of the excerpts from the book and various other tidbits besides, will be located at the website. So please go to it, take a look at the trailer, and bookmark it so you can come back later as more and more is added. To reportagebook.com. And one of the first things to be added will be an interview that was recently conducted by Captain Jack of Badlands Radio with myself about reportage and some of the issues covered in these essays on the New World Order. And that audio will be available for download in the coming days from reportagebook.com. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Paul Craig Roberts via informationclearinghouse.info, October 9th, 2009. Warmonger wins Peace Prize. It took 25 years longer than George Orwell thought for the slogans of 1984 to become reality. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. I would add, lie is truth. The Nobel Committee has awarded the 2009 Peace Prize to President Obama, the person who started a new war in Pakistan, 
upped the war in Afghanistan and continues to threaten Iran with attack unless Iran does what the U.S. government demands and relinquishes its right as a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. The Nobel Committee chairman, Thorbjorn Jagland, said, Only very rarely has a person to the same extent as Obama captured the world's attention and given its people hope for a better future. Obama, the committee gushed, has created a new climate in international politics. Tell that to the two million displaced Pakistanis and the unknown numbers of dead ones that Obama has racked up in his few months in office. Tell that to the Afghans where civilian deaths continue to mount as Obama's war of necessity drones on indeterminably. No Bush policy has changed. Iraq is still occupied. The Guantanamo torture prison is still functioning. Rendition and assassinations are still occurring. Spying on Americans without warrants is still the order of the day. Civil liberties are continuing to be violated in the name of Oceania's war on terror. Apparently, the Nobel Committee is suffering from the delusion that, being a minority, Obama is going to put a stop to Western hegemony over darker-skinned peoples. Today's second real news story comes from the Sydney Morning Herald, October 8, 2009. Secret EU plans to become new global power revealed. The European Union has drawn up secret plans to establish itself as a global power in its own right, with the authority to sign international agreements on behalf of member states. Confidential negotiations on how to implement the Lisbon Treaty have produced proposals to allow the EU to negotiate treaties and even open embassies across the world. According to one confidential paper, the first pilot embassies are planned in New York, Kabul, and Addis Ababa. A letter conferring a full legal personality for the EU has been drafted in order for a new European diplomatic service to be recognized as fully-fledged negotiators by international bodies and all non-EU countries. Today's third real news story comes from the Corbett Report, 8th of October 2009. Ballot box problems, broken laws, cast doubt on Irish-Lisbon referendum result. Evidence of widespread voting irregularities have emerged from last Friday's Lisbon Treaty referendum in Ireland, calling the yes side's apparent victory into question. The specter of ballot box stuffing in Ireland's second referendum on the Lisbon Treaty was raised last Wednesday, when officials charged with tallying the votes were sent ballot boxes 48 hours before voting began, in direct violation of Irish regulations requiring that the boxes be delivered directly to voting stations under Gardaí escort at 7 a.m. on the day of the vote. According to reports, the complaints of one of the returning officers who was concerned about the serious breach of election security were dismissed on the basis that the ballot boxes had no commercial value and thus were not in danger of being stolen. The agency involved in the decision evidently did not address the possibility of ballot box stuffing. Further concerns were raised when startling footage emerged of the scene outside the Cork City Hall where the votes were being counted. The footage clearly shows a complete absence of security of the ballots and even the ballot boxes as unidentified people pass in and out of the area where the votes lie waiting to be count with one man even seen leaving with one of the ballot boxes.
Today's fourth real news story comes from nyccan.org, October 9th, 2009. Once again, the will of the voters is denied. Yesterday afternoon, Justice Edward Lenner of the State Supreme Court rubber-stamped referee Louis Crespo's recommendation that the decision to establish a local commission to investigate the events of September 11th not be put before the voters on November 3rd. After showing interest in weighing both sides' arguments in the hearing, the judge's short decision gives no indication of having considered the arguments put forth in the petitioner's memorandum of law, nor any acknowledgement of the need for a new investigation, which the City of New York callously dismissed as irrelevant. On a dark day for democracy, the patriotic call for answers by hundreds of 9-11 families, first responders, and survivors has been stifled, and the will of the people of New York City once again denied. Our final real news story this week comes from PrisonPlanet.com, October 10th, 2009. APF plan to run Harden jail terminated, arrest of Hilton possible. The saga of American Police Force and its plans to take over a $27 million detention facility in Hardin, Montana, came to an end last night with the announcement that the deal was terminated, as the governor of Montana slammed local officials for being part of the conspiracy by continuing their dealings with known criminals and conmen such as Michael Hilton. As we reported last week, the deal seemed destined to fail following revelations that the founder of APF, Michael Hilton, was a career criminal who had operated under 17 different aliases, spent three years in prison, and still has $1.1 million in outstanding civil judgments against him. This prompted the governor of Montana to launch an investigation into both APF and local officials. Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer upbraided Hardin officials for first striking a deal with what he called conmen and then defending American police force after Hilton's history emerged, reports the Associated Press. They became part of the conspiracy. They became apologists, he said of Peterson and others involved in the deal. Welcome to episode 102 of the Corbett Report, Know Your History, Iran-Contra. An issue that this podcast has been dealing with since its inception, and will continue to deal with, and dealt with quite specifically in episode 68, Know Your History, is that history, of course, is not something done, gone, and forgotten about. In fact, history, quite to the contrary, is something that lives on, in, and through us, and is something that is absolutely vital to understand in order to come to any sort of understanding as where we are as a species and where we're likely to go. Now, of course, this can take many forms, and this applies equally to all periods of human history, but it's especially important to understand our recent history where some of the main actors involved in some of the most spectacular and stunning political scandals of our times are still in the positions of power where they can still wield authority over us. Perhaps one of those points of confluence in history where so many of the main actors of the past 50 years of political history 
converged, conspired, and indeed continue to pull the strings through which they can still direct our society towards their own nefarious purposes. Of course, that might all sound like hyperbole until we start looking at the specifics of what I'm talking about. And of course, I am talking about the Iran-Contra affair. Perhaps some of my younger listeners will be too young to have really remembered the Iran-Contra affair and its proceedings from a personal perspective. And it has been a number of years besides since the the Iran-Contra affair blew over. And of course, at once something has blown off of the mainstream corporate-controlled media radar, it is usually never brought up again. So perhaps it's a good idea to start today by getting everyone on the same page and listening to the opening of a very important documentary on the subject of the Iran-Contra affair. This is a PBS documentary from 1987, and it's entitled The Secret Government, The Constitution in Crisis, and it was hosted by Bill Moyers. Again, this is a very important documentary, and I do recommend people watch it, although there are some caveats to that, which I will add after we listen to this very good opening clip which I think adequately summarizes the Iran-Contra affair and exactly what was at stake in this political scandal. People lined up early every day, waiting to listen in person to the Iran-Contra hearings, while millions watched from home on television. Members of the secret government had been forced from the shadows into the spotlight. I will tell you right now, Council, and all the members here gathered, that I misled the Congress. I mis- At that meeting. At that meeting. Face to face. Face to face. You made false statements to them about your activities in support of the Contras. I did. Oliver North had been the secret government's chronic liar, long on zeal for his president and the cause. But he was not the only zealot, not the only one to deceive. The hearings revealed a wholesale policy of secrecy shrouded in lies of passion cloaked in fiction and deception. But the hearings told only part of the story, so let's begin on day one. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will... President Reagan came to office promising to restore America's military and moral prestige in the world. Voters had responded when he pledged to be tough on terrorists, a vow he repeated time and again. Let me further make it plain to the assassins in Beirut and their accomplices wherever they may be, that America will never make concessions to terrorists. That's what the president kept saying, but it's not what he was doing. The story broke one year ago, on November 3, 1986, in a magazine in Lebanon. The United States had defied its own embargo on arms to Iran. Ronald Reagan was offering weapons to the Ayatollah Khomeini in return for the release of American hostages. The president went on television to deny it. The charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon. That the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. The president was not telling the truth. And when he held a news conference the next week, the pattern of deception continued. President, I don't think it's still clear just what Israel's role was in this. Could you explain what the Israeli role was here? No, because we, as I say, have had nothing to do with other countries or 
their shipment of arms or doing what they're, they're doing. That wasn't the and truth either. Half an hour later, the White House press office corrected the president. Israel had been a key player in the sale of arms to Iran. Rapidly now, the web of secrets was unraveling. On November 25th, the president's old friend and ally, Attorney General Edwin Meese, revealed the deepest secret of all. Certain monies which were received in the transaction between representatives of Israel and representatives of Iran were uh, taken and made available to the forces in Central America which are opposing the Sandinista government there. The Constitution is ambiguous on many things, but not on this. The president, quote, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Yet President Reagan himself approved selling arms to Iran. And as for the illegal diversion of funds to the Contras, well, the president's national security advisor said the decision had been his. I made a very deliberate decision not to ask the president so that I could insulate him from the decision and provide some future deniability for the president if it ever leaked out. But there was no denying that the president's men knew what was in the president's mind. And he had been very adamant at the time that he says, look, I don't want to pull out our support for the Contras for any reason. This, this would be an unacceptable option. Isn't there something that I could do unilaterally? Unilaterally. In other words, without that, congressional approval. Ronald Reagan's message was clear. Find some way, any way, to help the Contras. So I guess in a way they are counter-revolutionary, and God bless them for being that way. And I guess that makes them Contras, and so it makes me a Contra, too. The Contras. Ronald Reagan compared them to our founding fathers. In reality, Ronald Reagan and CIA Director William Casey were their founding fathers. Two months after his inauguration, the president approved the funds which Casey used to create the Contras. Their ultimate goal was the violent overthrow of the Nicaraguan government, a government the United States legally recognizes. So the war had to be carried out covertly as a campaign of terror. But Americans were outraged when CIA agents mined the Nicaraguan harbors and blew up fuel tanks, causing thousands of Nicaraguan citizens to flee their homes. Congress, in protest, cut off the Contra funds. When the president refused to give up on his creation, the Contras cheered. But how to keep the Contra war going despite Congress, the law, and public opinion? First, a small cabal in the White House took charge of policy. The President, CIA Director Casey, National Security Advisors McFarlane and Porndexter, and their aide, Colonel North, who did not wear his Marine uniform when he worked for the secret government. To raise money for the Contras, the secret team turned to right-wing governments that could do favors for the United States and receive favors in return. The king of Saudi Arabia doled out a million dollars a month. The sultan of Brunei coughed up ten million dollars that was misplaced through a White House error. The secret government also encouraged the fundraising efforts of General John Singlaub. Relieved of his command for insubordination in 1977, he now runs the World Anti-Communist League. I represent hundreds of thousands of Americans who are sympathetic your cause and want to help. 
Here at home, wealthy right-wingers were solicited directly by Oliver North. Some of them were told their contributions would get them invited to the Oval Office. Conservative activist Carl Channel, who later pleaded guilty to conspiracy to defraud the government, worked directly with Colonel North, pumping donors like investor Joseph Aboyle. I take it your encounters involved, invariably involved, both Mr. Channel and Colonel North. And maybe Channel took you to North, and then you met with North, and then subsequently you would meet with Channel. But in a sense, they worked as a team. In a sense, yes. Uh, Mrs. Garwood, is that true in your instance as well? I would say that's a fairly accurate description. All this was being done to advance the president's policies, but it wasn't enough. To get around the law, the White House then enlisted the services of something called the Enterprise. The Enterprise is, is the uh, group of, of companies that uh, Mr. Hakim formed to manage the, uh, the Contra and the Iranian project. Who controls the Enterprise? I exercised overall control. General Richard Secord has been in and out of covert operations for a quarter century. One of the first Americans to fly secret missions in Vietnam, he also helped run the CIA's secret war in Laos. Secord became a major Pentagon figure in foreign military sales, especially to the Shah of Iran. That's where he met this man, Albert Hakim. Not only was I presented with an opportunity to help my country, the United States, and my native land, Iran, but at the same time, I had the opportunity to profit financially. Albert Hakim was Secord's partner in the enterprise. Born in Iran, he made millions selling American-made arms to the Shah, often relying on bribes and illegal payoffs to ease the way. Now he handled financial matters for the enterprise. Like any good business, the enterprise was designed to make money. Am I correct, Mr. Secord, that from December 1984 until July 1985, you were engaged in selling arms to the countries for profit? That's correct. Then, at the direct request of the secret White House team, the Enterprise brokered American arms to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Beyond Secord and Hakim, it grew to include a shadowy network of arms dealers, fraudulent companies, and secret bank accounts. The enterprise was, as Senator Daniel Inouye put it, a shadowy government with its own air force, its own navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. Now that last particularly damning statement of what can only be described as a secret government with its own army, its own air force, its own intelligence agency, and its own ability to operate and act independently of the Congress or the lawful constitutional forms of government in the United States came from Senator Daniel Inouye. And that's a name that you'll have to keep in mind for a little bit later on. But for right now, I guess it should be pretty obvious from that brief introductory summation of Iran-Contra and some of the troubling issues that it brings up that indeed what we are dealing with here is much more than a run-of-the-mill political scandal. It in fact represents wanton criminality 
and even flagrant violations of the Constitution that ran all the way up the ladder to the top, to the President of the United States, who knowingly broke the laws of the United States of America, thus putting him and his entire administration in direct contempt of the Constitution of the United States. For those who didn't pick up on the full scope and ramifications of the importance of this issue, Bill Moyers does a good job later on in the documentary supplying a summary of the case and why it's important. All this, the contempt for Congress, the defiance of law, the huge markups and profits, the secret bank accounts, the shady characters, the shakedown of foreign governments, the complicity in death and destruction, they did all this in the dark because it would never stand the light of day. Secrecy is the freedom zealots dream of. No watchman to check the door, no accountant to check the books, no judge to check the law. The secret government has no constitution. The rules it follows are the rules it makes up. So William Casey could dream that the enterprise might take on a life of its own, permanent and wholly unaccountable. Once again, I would like to recommend that my listeners go and watch that documentary, The Secret Government, Constitution and Crisis, in its entirety, because it is an extremely powerful documentary that exposes a lot of key truths, not just about the Iran-Contra affair, but also about all of the historical context that led up to and made that affair possible, and shows that the Iran-Contra affair, of course, although it may be a moment in political history, of course connects forwards and backwards, and has ramifications right down through the decades to today, with many of the key players in Iran-Contra still lurking around in the shadows of the shadow government, so ably pointed out and identified by Bill Moyers in that documentary. The documentary also covers such extremely important pieces of truth as Operation Paperclip, that operation that we talked about in a previous episode of this podcast to bring over thousands of Nazi scientists, military personnel, intelligence officials, government workers, and others who could be of use to the good guys in the Cold War and how that led to the birth of the National Security State and the passing of the National Security Act how that led to the creation of the CIA, which eventually, in fact, only a few years later, started to go rogue in a major way, launching Operation Ajax, which, of course, was the 1953 classified operation to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. And the documentary also discusses Operation PB Success, which was the operation to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz. And of course, my listeners will remember that that was masterminded by E. Howard Hunt, who also, of course, admitted on his deathbed to being part of the assassination to murder John F. Kennedy. Amazingly enough, this Bill Moyers PBS documentary even alludes to the fact that perhaps, just perhaps, those crazy conspiracy theorists who think that John F. Kennedy was not killed by a lone nut with no reason... Well, perhaps those crazy conspiracy theorists might actually have something there. As I say, there are a lot of hard truths exposed in this documentary, and it does a good job of putting it in a larger historical context so that we can understand the ramifications of everything that the Rand-Contra scandal represented. However, having said all of that, as we will start to see shortly, this documentary still represents a limited hangout 
a partial exposure of the truth in order that the bigger nuggets of truth will not get exposed. This, to be sure, is a very subtle PR technique, and one that's done with great skill by Bill Moyers, of course, longtime PBS veteran, and also, of course, veteran of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, even a former White House press secretary, and, oh yeah, by the way, a permanent member of the Bilderberg Group. That's right, just like his PBS cohort Charlie Rose, who has a penchant for interviewing people of the likes of Henry Kissinger, and Kissinger, of course, being quite free and open to talk about the New World Order on Charlie Rose's show. Well, yes, Bill Moyers also is a regular attendee and hobnobs with the Bilderberg bigwigs. So perhaps, just perhaps, there's a point at which Bill Moyers is not going to expose the full truth behind the scandal. Well, we're going to get into those full truths in a moment, but first, maybe we should flesh out this point and how limited hangouts can, even through the exposure of amazing information, still manage to distract the public from the real issues. So in order to do that, let's take a look at another excellent and perhaps even more important documentary on the Iran-Contra affair called Cover-Up Behind the Iran-Contra Affair. This is a 1988 documentary that goes into much greater detail about the scandal and what areas the controlled corporate media and even the controlled foundation-funded media did not go into in their coverage of Iran-Contra. Let's listen to an excerpt from that documentary. Did these hearings uncover the full story behind the Contragate scandal? Or was it merely an attempt to keep the real truth hidden from public view? Peter Dale Scott, professor at the University of California at Berkeley, has conducted extensive research on covert action and CIA activities. The results are detailed in his book, The Iran-Contra Connection. I think the real issue was that uh, both uh, the, the administration and the majority of the people in the committees were frightened that the real scandals, the drug scandals, for example, would really threaten the, 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 any future conduct of covert operations on the scale that they had been handled in the past. And so they were trying very deliberately to limit the damage. This was damage control. Look only at the Iran arms sales and the alleged diversion to the Contras. The American people may very well feel that the important questions didn't get asked so they don't have the whole picture. They have a few little transactions and nauseating detail on those few transactions, but they, but they were cheated out of the whole bowl of wax. And so they were pulling their punches on all the major questions and issues of what, would really, what really happened in this thing, what the CIA's role was. Anytime they got into anything that was really sensitive about exactly that, exactly what the CIA's role was and exactly what laws were broken and when, they went into secret session, which means that we the people won't be, you know, we won't ever know. Like you, I do not wish to see secrets of this land inadvertently and accidentally made public. Accordingly, the panel will enter into executive session. In addition to facts that were hidden from the public through secrecy and executive sessions, other evidence was simply destroyed. When you got back to examining what they had done, 
they systematically destroyed and shredded all of the documentation as much as they could get. Hours of, of shredding altered some of the documents that remained, stole what they couldn't shred. Now, this gives you an indication that there may be a, a few things they did that they didn't want the public to know. I shredded. I was never told not to shred. I shredded because I thought it was the right thing to do. When I didn't have a shredder, I put it in a burn bag and they were burned. Weren't you going through your files to get rid of embarrassing documents? Embarrassing? No. Documents that would compromise the national security of the United States, documents that would put lives at risk, documents that would demonstrate a covert action in the U.S. direction and control and, and relationship to it, yes. Are you Embarrassing? No. Once again, I would like to recommend my listeners go and watch Cover Up the Behind the Iran-Contra Affair in its entirety as it's available on YouTube and is well worth watching. But I've alluded a few times now to the idea that there are some major issues being covered up and were covered up during the commission hearings about the Iran-Contra scandal, so perhaps it's time to start detailing those and finding out what they are specifically. And to do that, let's turn back to Senator Daniel Inoue, the Japanese-American and, of course, the longest ser- now the second longest-serving senator in the Senate after Senator Ted Kennedy died earlier this year. And, of course, he was the one at the end of that first clip that we listened to from the Constitution in Crisis documentary, where he made that very stirring and powerful speech about how the Iran-Contra affair had exposed a shadow government with its own shadow armed forces and shadow intelligence agency, and all of the shadow arms and legs of this shadow government that operate, of course, operated during that time and operate down through to today. And, of course, listening to that speech, you might think that Senator Inoue was some great person who was trying to get to the bottom of this. But, of course, he figures very prominently in what has become one of the most important and popular and well-known aspects of the Iran-Contra cover-up, which, of course, came from an open committee hearing in which Representative Jack Brooks, a Democrat from Texas, attempted to ask some, shall we say, uncomfortable questions to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North about his real activities in the office that he was running regarding continuity of government operation planning. Colonel North, in your work at the uh, NSC, were you not assigned at one time to work on plans for the continuity of government in the event of a major disaster? Mr. Chairman. I believe that question touches upon a highly sensitive and classified area, so may I request that you not touch upon that, sir. I was particularly concerned, Mr. Chairman, because I read in Miami papers and several others that there had been a plan uh, developed by that same agency, a contingency plan in the event of emergency that would suspend the American Constitution. And I was deeply concerned about it and wondered if that was the area in which he had worked. I most respectfully request that that matter not be touched upon at this stage. If we wish to get into this, I'm certain arrangements can be made for an executive session. 
As I say, that's a quite well-known aspect of the Iran-Contra hearings by now and has been pointed out many times by many researchers, including myself in previous episodes of this podcast. Now, there's no doubt that these continuity of government operations plannings, which were alluded to during the Iran-Contra hearings but were never made public, of course are very much still a part of the current political climate. And of course, we've looked at many indications of that before, including, of course, in episode 89, we took a look at a very important article from nowpublic.com, Kissinger, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Iran's nuclear program, which shows how the very same people who were skulking around during the Ford and Reagan administrations working on continuity of government planning were the very same people who were involved in implementing all of those continuity of government operations on the morning of 9-11. And of course, that has been continued as the state of emergency has been renewed every single year by the American dictator, I mean, President Bush, of course. And then, of course, this year, President Obama renewed the state of national emergency because, of course, Al-Qaeda is lurking behind every corner. So we still have the shadow government, which was really put into full gear on 9-11, still fully armed and ready to go in the implementation of various operations for rounding up and detaining American citizens. Again, this is something that we've looked at before, and I'd direct listeners to my first interview with Dan Hamburg, the former congressman who, of course, co-wrote an article in the San Francisco Chronicle back in 2008, Rule by Fear or Rule by Law, which, of course, goes into this issue in some detail. But yet another perspective on this and how it all ties into what's happening today comes from Project Censored at projectcensored.org, which of course every year releases a list of the top 25 censored news stories, i.e. stories that didn't make the cut in the corporate-controlled media, but which are nonetheless vitally important stories. And of course, I've just recently talked to James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com about that in a new video series which we're launching this week called The New World Next Week which is a very exciting video project, so please keep an eye on the homepage for that. But at any rate, looking at Project Censored for 2007, the 14th top censored story of 2007 was Homeland Security Contracts KBR to Build Detention Centers in the U.S. Quote, Halliburton subsidiary KBR, formerly Kellogg, Brown & Root, announced on January 24, 2006 that it had been awarded a $385 million contingency contract by the Department of Homeland Security to build detention camps in the United States. According to a press release posted on the Halliburton website, the contract, which is effective immediately, provides for establishing temporary detention and processing capabilities to augment existing immigrations and customs enforcement detention and removal operations. Program facilities in the event of an emergency influx of immigrants into the U.S. or to support the rapid development of new programs. The contingency support contract provides for planning and, if required, initiation of specific engineering, construction, and logistics support tasks to establish, operate, and maintain one or more expansion facilities. What little coverage the announcement received focused on concerns about Halliburton's reputation for overcharging U.S. taxpayers for substandard services. Less attention was focused on the phrase 
rapid development of new programs, or what type of programs might require a major expansion of detention centers capable of holding 5,000 people each. Jamie Zweibach, spokesman for ICE, declined to elaborate on what these new programs might be. Only a few independent journalists, such as Peter Dale Scott, Maureen Farrell, and Nat Perry, have explored what the Bush administration might actually have in mind. Scott speculates that the detention centers could be used to detain American citizens if the Bush administration were to declare martial law. He recalled that during the Reagan administration, National Security Council aide Oliver North organized the Rex 84 Readiness Exercise, which contemplated the Federal Emergency Management Agency rounding up and detaining 400,000 refugees in the event of uncontrolled population movements over the Mexican border into the U.S. North's exercise, which reportedly contemplated possible suspension of the Constitution, led to a line of questioning during the Iran-Contra hearings concerning the idea that plans for expanded internment and detention facilities would not be confined to refugees alone. It is relevant, says Scott, that in 2002, Attorney General John Ashcroft announced his desire to see camps for U.S. citizens deemed to be enemy combatants. On February 17, 2006, in a speech to the Council on Foreign Relations, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld spoke of the harm being done to the country's security, not just by the enemy, but also by what he called news informers, who needed to be combated in a contest of wills. Since September 11th, the Bush administration has implemented a number of interrelated programs that were planned in the 1980s under President Reagan. Continuity of government proposals, a classified plan for keeping a secret government within the government running during and after a nuclear disaster, included vastly expanded detention capabilities, warrantless eavesdropping, and preparations for greater use of martial law. Scott points out that, while Oliver North represented a minority element in the Reagan administration, which soon distanced itself from both the man and his proposals, the minority associated with COG planning, which included Cheney and Rumsfeld, appear to be in control of the U.S. government today. End quote. As we can see, the history of the Iran-Contra scandal continues to live on in the present day through the continuity of government plans first drafted up under Oliver North and now, of course, being implemented by first the Bush administration and now the Obama administration. Different faces, same plans, same agenda. And of course, that particular aspect of the agenda is one that we've gone over many times before. And I'd like to direct my listeners to the U.S. Army Plans to Invade U.S., a very popular video that we've had almost 500,000 views on so far on YouTube. So I'd like to direct my listeners there, if they haven't seen that video already, to begin exploring some of that deep political history, as Peter Dale Scott might term it. But for another extremely important aspect of how the Iran-Contra scandal was not fully blown open at the time and was in fact contained by political operatives, well, let's turn to another fact that we've gone over before on this podcast, but let's flesh it out in further detail. Because of course, the planes were being flown down full of guns for the Contras, but they were not flying back empty. They were flying back full of drugs. 
And of course, this isn't crazy conspiracy theory. This is mundane fact that's been reported time and time again in the controlled corporate media. And now, thanks to the wonders of the internet and the tireless efforts of researchers like Jonathan Elinoff of coreofcorruption.com, we can now bear the fruits of all that labor and access the incredibly valuable Core of Corruption YouTube news archive for a news report from CBS going back to 1987 on the Iran-Contra drug-running scandal. For the past several years, the Reagan administration has been involved in an expensive, sophisticated, highly publicized campaign to stamp out drug smuggling. But for some time, there have been startling accusations that the United States government itself may have actually helped bring drugs into this country as part of the effort to supply arms and perhaps money to the Nicaraguan rebels, the Contras. CBS News correspondent Jane Wallace investigated the story for the CBS News magazine, West 57th. Thank you, Dan. We all know that there was a secret weapons network in order to supply the Contras. The Tower Commission confirmed that. What's new is that some of those who flew guns down to the Contras also flew drugs, they claim, back to the United States. The idea was to trace, to replace untraceable cash to the Nicaraguan rebels. All of this was part of an arrangement that included former and current CIA operatives. Mike Tolliver is a pilot whose principal occupation has been smuggling drugs. He's currently in federal prison on a drug charge unrelated to his flights for the Contras. He says he was approached in 1985, and the arrangement was clear from the start. We could bring back our own cargo, and they would arrange it, or we could bring back their cargo without ever having to worry about interception, arrest, anything like this, that everything was taken care of. What kind of cargo were you talking about? Drugs. What kind of drugs? Whatever you wanted, marijuana, cocaine. Whatever you want to come back with, fine. We can make sure you don't get any customs. Sure, uh, it was my understanding that they would make sure we wouldn't get caught. They would provide not only the cargo, but the landing areas, crews, everything. For drug runs? Yeah. They would also provide the drugs if you wanted? Absolutely, which indeed they did. Now, of course, this is part of a much, much bigger story, and it's one that proves the thesis of today's episode that the past obviously continues to live on as it reverberates down through the present and even, of course, into the future. And one example of that is that, of course, one of the consequences of the CIA drug running in the Iran-Contra days was that the steady and easy supply of cocaine fed a line from the CIA-protected drug runners to Freeway Ricky Ross, right through to the crack cocaine epidemic of the early 90s. Of course, Gary Webb's groundbreaking investigative reporting on the issue was heralded at first, and then once the extent of what he was revealing started to become apparent, he was viciously attacked by all of the other mainstream corporate-controlled newspaper outlets, including the New York Times and the LA Times, and the Washington Post, all of which later retracted their criticism of Gary Webb after he had committed suicide by shooting himself twice in the head. Yes, that's what the Sacramento County coroner wants us to believe at any rate. Well, there you go. There's a very, very rich vein of history to be mined by my various researcher listeners out there, so... Again, please look at episode 19 of this podcast for more information on that subject. 
But all of that doesn't go quite to the point, which is that obviously the very, very upper echelons of the Reagan administration were not only aware, but deeply complicit in this drug running, and in fact were perhaps directly involved. Let's take a look at an excellent article from fromthewilderness.com. The Bush Drug Sting, The Sins of the Father, The Sins of the Son, and The Smoking Airplane. Why does George W. Bush fly in drug smuggler Barry Seal's airplane? Quote, It has all the makings of a major box office thriller. Texas governor and Republican presidential contender George W. Bush and his brother Jeb, allegedly caught on videotape in 1985 picking up kilos of cocaine at a Florida airport in a DEA sting set up by Barry Seal. An ensuing murderous cover-up featuring Seal's public assassination less than a year later by a hit team, the members of which, when caught, revealed to their attorneys during trial that their actions were being directed by then-National Security Council staffer, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. End quote. Again, that's more than we can bite off and chew in this episode, so I will leave it for you to go and bite off and chew that at home, because I know that is an extremely interesting article with a lot of very interesting connections that lead directly from the Iran Contra days right through to today, and of course to now departed President George W. Bush. Of course, we also know how this ties in with Governor Bill Clinton and the MENA drug-running scam, which was also featured in episode 19, so please go and listen to that. One of the very few people who actually suffered any real consequences from the Iran-Contra affair was Admiral John Poindexter. He actually was convicted of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, perjury, defrauding the government, and the alteration and destruction of ever evidence pertaining to the affair. But his conviction was reversed on appeal less than a year later on technical grounds. So he obviously managed to escape the wheels of justice. And it didn't take very long before political memory being what it is, everyone in Washington seems to have forgotten that this was a criminal who had lied to Congress, and he was appointed to head DARPA the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency under the Bush administration. And on August 2nd, 2002, he delivered a speech regarding the overview of the Information Awareness Office. Quote, IAO programs are focused on making total information awareness, TIA, real. This is a high-level, visionary, functional view of the worldwide system, somewhat oversimplified. One of the significant new data sources that needs to be mined to discover and track terrorists is the transaction space. If terrorist organizations are going to plan and execute attacks against the United States, their people must engage in transactions and they will leave signatures in this information space. This is a list of transaction categories and it's meant to be inclusive. Currently, terrorists are able to move freely throughout the world, to hide when necessary, to find sponsorship and support, and to operate in small, independent cells, and to strike infrequently, exploiting weapons of mass effects and media response to influence governments. End quote. 
I will let you go and read that entire speech in its entirety by following the link from the documentation section of today's episode, but for the heart of thinking, what you just heard was the government announcing a total surveillance control grid that is being set up out in the open where no one will even bother to take a look at it. Yes, that was the Total Information Awareness Office, which was officially launched in 2002. And of course, everyone can go and take a look at that wonderful seal that they've chosen to use for the Total Information Awareness Office of the all-seeing eye of Horus and the top of the pyramid radiating the Earth with its lava-like rays of love and, and peace, I'm sure. Now, of course, that one of the top-ranking officials in the Iran-Contra affair and someone who was proven to have lied to Congress would then resurface only a decade later in an Orwellian program to collect as much information on everyone in the world as humanly possible, or should I say as computerly possible, should perhaps not come as a surprise. And that's in light of a very different story that's very much connected and Maybe my listeners who've listened to some of my previous reporting on P-Tech will know where this is going. But in case you don't, let's look at Wired.com from April 1993. They wrote a story called The Inslaw Octopus, Software Piracy, Conspiracy, Cover-Up, Stonewalling, Covert Action. Just another decade at the Department of Justice. Now this is a story concerning PROMISE, the Prosecutor's Management Information System. It was case management software that was originally designed for federal prosecutors under a government grant in the 1970s. It was redesigned in the 1980s and was an extremely powerful software tool for tracking and processing data by all sorts of new and interesting means and connecting databases together in ways that made the promise of the electronic all-seeing eye closer than ever. And of course, the DOJ simply stole it from its inventor and refused to pay him for it. And this article is essentially about that story of how the Department of Justice stole it and then proceeded to sell it to foreign governments and to foreign intelligence agencies and under the table, in fact, committing numerous crimes in the process. And the implication is that, of course, well, perhaps there was a bit of a backdoor put into the code so that suddenly the U.S. Department of Justice or whoever sold it to these foreign agencies would thus have the backdoor into their most sensitive systems. Does this sound anything like P-Tech yet? Well, in one particular section of this article, it relates very much back to the Iran-Contra scandal, Quote, apparently Israel was not the only country interested in using promise for internal security purposes. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North also may have been using the program. According to several intelligence community sources, promise was in use at a 6,100 square foot command center built on the sixth floor of the Justice Department. According to both a contractor who helped design the center and information disclosed during the Iran-Contra hearings, Oliver North had a similar but smaller White House operations room that was connected by computer link to the DOJ's command center. 
Using the computers in his command center, North tracked dissidents and potential troublemakers within the United States as part of a domestic emergency preparedness program commissioned under Reagan's Federal Emergency Management Agency, according to sources and published reports. Using promise, sources point out, North could have drawn up lists of anyone ever arrested for a political protest, for example, or anyone who had ever refused to pay their taxes. Compared to Promise, Richard Nixon's enemy list or Senator Joe McCarthy's blacklist look downright crude. This operation was so sensitive that when Representative Jack Brooks asked North about it during the Iran-Contra hearings, the hearing was immediately suspended pending an executive secret conference. When the hearings were reconvened, the issue of North's FEMA dealings was dropped. End quote. Do you realize what information has just been related? The Promise software, which was the precursor to P-Tech, and in fact was just one early iteration of that same idea of enterprise architecture software, or software that can give a complete and total breakdown of all of the systems and processes within a company, an enterprise, a government, an agency, or a country, was according to several sources, being operated by Oliver North from a White House operations room. And indeed, we know that on 9-11, P-TECH was being run in the basement of the FAA and was working on mapping interoperability and potential issues during the event of, say, a terrorist hijacking over U.S. airspace and the links between the FAA and the Pentagon and NORAD. Once again, this history is extremely important, and we have to understand history in order to know who the players are and what they are up to. The gophers and water carriers and toadies to power do eventually get exposed, and they will be thrown away like so much used toilet paper after the New World Order is done with them. And we, the tireless researchers of real history, will press ever forward moving closer and closer towards utterly exposing and completely discrediting the system of control which they are trying to set up. Know your history or be doomed to repeat it. That's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for episode 103 of The Corbett Report. The smart grid cometh. You ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war There's a shadow on the faces Of the men who sent the gun To the wars that are fought in places Where their business interests run on the radio talk shows and the TV You hear one thing again and again How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone
Mr. Vice President, I appreciate you joining us tonight. I appreciate the straightforward way in uh, which you've engaged in this exchange. There are clearly some unanswered questions. Are you nothing. willing? Are you willing to go to a news conference before the Iowa caucuses? Answer I've questions been to from all, com all conferences since March. Uh, I gather that the answer is no. March. Thank you very much for being with us, Mr. Vice President. We'll be back with more news in a moment.